Could you walk into a rural Indian health service clinic, make yourself at home, learn the language, and become an integral part of a community and culture completely different than your own? Let's talk all about the amazing journey of Dr. Erica Elliott right here on episode 232 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hello and welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. I am so grateful you're here. Whether it's your first time tuning in or you've been hanging out with me here on the virtual airwaves for months or perhaps even years, thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you and your nursing career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, medicine, nursing, and beyond. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Carson Newman, a university offering a full suite of 100% online nursing degree programs, aside from clinicals or residency, of course, including RN to BSN, RN to MSN FNP, MSN FNP, and a post-master's FNP certificate. With stress-free clinical placements and unrivaled student support, their CCNE-accredited online courses are designed for busy nurses like you and feature no mandatory class login times. Please visit them at onlinenursing.cn.edu. That's onlinenursing.cn.edu. I thank Carson Newman for their generous support. If you want to see the show notes for this episode, hop on over to nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode 232. Again, that is nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 232. Anywho, we are here with my dear friend and colleague, the amazing Santa Fe-based medical doctor, Erica Elliott. Erica, welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. Hi. Hi, Keith. It's so good to be with you here, Erica. Just move a little closer to the microphone. So, Erica, you're an environmental doctor. We will get into what that means. And we are here actually to talk about your experiences to a large extent working with the Navajo people, the Diné people in Arizona and in the Four Corners area of the United States. So what would you say just right off about the adventure of being a white doctor middle-class doctor working on an Indian reservation with the Navajo people. What would you encapsulate about that? Well, I was very comfortable with the experience because I had worked in 1971, two and three as a school teacher. And I learned Navajo because my kids in the boarding school didn't speak English when I showed up there. And I didn't know anything about the Navajo people their language, their culture, their land. And so I didn't get anywhere the first week and uh, made no inroads with my class. They just looked at the ground and were very shy and didn't talk. And then my teacher aide said, if you really want to make a difference with these kids, I would try to learn about my people and even try to learn their language, even if you just learn a few words. So that changed everything. Once I started speaking Navajo, the kids looked up and they started making eye contact. They became friendly. They were anxious to learn English and tell me about their lives. 
And a whole world opened up to me that was so magical and enchanting and life-changing to me. I discovered that I could make a difference in people's lives just by caring about them. So this put me on my journey to finding my life's purpose. So years later, when I came back as a medical doctor to serve the Navajo people, I could speak to them in Navajo, and that made the interaction very pleasant. In fact, they have a wonderful sense of humor in their own language, and so we we could laugh and I could put them at ease because before they understood that I knew about Navajo culture and could speak their language, they were very withdrawn and silent and not very uh, forthcoming with information. Mm -hmm. It was very hard to take a history. Right. And, you know, I've heard you speak before and I'm just going to tell audience member who's wondering that you and I are friends. We both live here in Santa Fe. You were my neighbor for five years. We're recording this in your office here. And you're a doctor working out of your home here in Santa Fe. And I just wanted to divulge that, be transparent. And I've heard you speak. I've heard you read from your book at the book opening here in Santa Fe. And it's an amazing story. And it sounds like to me that you are talking about cultural competence and it sounds like you were practicing culturally competent healthcare before anyone was even talking about it here in the United States. Exactly. I used what I had learned living with the Navajo people and being accepted into their homes, into their lives, their ceremonies. And um, I applied that to my practice of medicine, and it made a huge difference. And I just think, oh, my God. If I was like some of the other white doctors who came, they had a totally different view of the Navajo people than I did. They mm-hmm. thought of them as stoic, not talking, no sense of humor. Uncivilized. Yeah, all that stuff. And <laughs> right. that's so not true. Right. But when you don't understand and you're looking from the outside, it can seem very strange and foreign because it is strange and foreign. But You've told stories, too, that prior to being a school teacher on the Navajo Reservation, you were a shepherd, right? And you, I, I was a shepherd after I taught school well, for after two years. Then I wanted to really deepen my understanding of Navajo culture and perfect my Navajo language skills so I could be really fully conversant. And so I worked with a family that spoke no English. The grandparents knew one word of English, and that was water. Water, water. <laughs> because water was so important <laughs> right. to them. So they knew how to say They knew that. how to say water, and that was it. So I I had to uh, really become way more fluent in Navajo uh, day by day. I was there for three and a half months herding sheep and goats. I had 594 sheep and goats. Wow. And they required me to learn how to butcher, how to shear sheep and card the wool and spin the wool and dye the wool. So when I wove Navajo rugs, it represented a huge total experience, not just sitting down and weaving. It represented herding sheep, uh, shearing sheep, carding, spinning, dyeing, and then weaving. Mm -hmm. And then just to take the weaving metaphor, you wove your experience as a shepherd and a school teacher 
and your language skills and everything you'd learned about the culture and the ways in which you'd been accepted in the culture by the community who saw you as not one of them, but as a white person who really took interest and not ingratiated, but you you integrated into their culture. You assimilated in and you spoke their language, practiced their traditions, went to their rituals and ate their food and herded their sheep. And and so you were ensconced in that in that environment and that community in a way that very few people pull off. And I think it's fascinating. Let's say there's a nurse listening here right now, listening to this episode, and she's thinking, you know, I'd really like to maybe get a job with the Indian Health Service and work on a reservation and maybe get some loan repayment out of that because that's what a lot of people do who work for the IHS, right? Because they always need medical personnel. So what would you say to that person about getting a position like that and then entering into that world? How, How could they in some ways emulate what you did without becoming a school teacher and a shepherd? What could they do as a healthcare provider to provide culturally competent care and have people actually trust them? If uh, this nurse in question could find somebody the way I found somebody, my teacher aide was the one who shepherded me into Navajo culture. No pun intended. No pun intended. And so if this nurse could find somebody like that and let it be known that their heart is open with no judgment to the Navajo people, their culture, they are don't like to feel judged. It's a horrible feeling. So they need to feel that you really are sincere in your desire to learn about Navajo people. And it's without being condescending or anything like that. It's equal to equal, peer to peer. Mm-hmm. And and even making uh, some attempts to speak Navajo, although most Navajos speak English now. Sure. This but is 30 years later. This is, than well, your I was 50. It was 50 years ago that I was, a, well, it was 48 years ago that wow. I was a school teacher. And in the boarding schools, many of the children didn't speak English, unlike mm-hmm. the public schools. So that could totally change the nurse's experience for herself and for her patients. It could be. So heart opening, so life transforming when you step into another person's world mm-hmm. and into their shoes with no judgment and right. an open heart. And the same goes for when you walk into an exam room and you have a, a Latinx person or you have a person who's here from Japan and you're doing an exam on them. And you might not understand Japanese culture completely, but you can glean a little bit and learn about their how they like to make eye contact or not mm. make eye contact. Yeah. Do they shake hands or not shake hands? Like you said that that I remember you telling the story in your classroom okay. when you yeah. went into the classroom, the children were all looking down. Right. And you didn't understand at first what was happening. Right. Right. And the teacher aide a week later when after I said I wanted to leave, this was going nowhere, I wasn't able to make any connection with the students. That's when Donna Scott, my teacher aide, asked me if I wanted to learn about her people. And she started the introduction to her people by telling me what happened those first few days. 
And I was so ashamed of myself for judging these people for something I didn't know anything about. They were not being insolent. They were looking down, she said, to show respect. Ah, and not to I, make eye contact with an authority yeah, figure. Yeah, because they are being respectful. Plus, on top of that, they were extremely shy. These were kids that came from remote areas, unlike the public school kids who are used to being around white people. These kids weren't. And so they were shy and being respectful. And when Donna Scott told me that, I was flooded with remorse for passing judgment and mm. ashamed of myself. And it made me want more than ever to learn about my students. Right. And you tell this story too in that same chapter about one of the students, you were trying to get him to introduce himself. So you called on him by name and pointed at him. And then you realized that pointing at a Navajo person is not acceptable Ex in that culture. Exactly. He, he cringed as though I had shot him with a gun. Oh. And Donna Scott said, you never point at a Navajo, a traditional Navajo, because that's like singling them out and almost like putting a hex on them. And you point with your lips, you, you pucker out your lips and uh, like you're about to kiss somebody. And that's indicating in lieu of using a finger. Mm -hmm. And in Navajo culture, in traditional Navajo culture, as opposed to our current times, Navajo people did not want to stand out. Unlike white people, white people like to distinguish themselves and be the best or right. be noticeable. They don't like that. They want to be part of their community as a whole and not try to beat anybody or uh, stand out in any way. So pointing a finger makes them stand out and makes them subject to witchcraft. Ah, uh, so you really need to honor those beliefs and those customs and folkways or whatever word we use for those things. Right. And I used to work in the Puerto Rican community in Springfield, Massachusetts with my wife, Mary, and we served the Puerto Rican community for years, children, adults, elders, people with disabilities. And they also point with their lips when you ask, oh, where's so-and-so? And they'll point, lift their chin and, and pucker their lips to point where that person is or they'll point to the side. <laughs> and it, it's fun. And we ate their food, went to their parties, went to their funerals, their weddings. We went to church with them to feel, to experience that. We sang with them and danced with them. And that's how we got into the Puerto Rican community. And we spoke Spanish and our Spanish got better and better and better and better. And I was known as Doctor when I would walk around downtown Springfield in that neighborhood. There's the Doctor, you know? And so when you gain that respect and connection, it mm. totally changes the tenor of the care that you can provide. Right. 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 And <laughs> you also tell the story, getting to the care you provide, that you were fresh out of medical school. You'd finished your residency, residency in family practice in Albuquerque. New Mexico. In color, Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado. And so you arrived to this new job you got on the Navajo reservation. Well, it's off the reservation, but half my patients were Navajo. It was in Cuba, New Mexico, oh, a rem Cuba, that's remote right. area, mm -hmm. and uh, it served all the surrounding Navajo communities. They all came to this clinic because the next place to get health care was 60 miles away, or no, it was two hours away in Albuquerque. Two hours to get mm -hmm. health care. Yeah. And this was the 70s? 
that no, I came back in 1986, 87, and 88. Okay, so the healthcare infrastructure was different than it is now in 2019. Oh yeah, it was very primitive there. Very, they were underfunded, understaffed, under resourced, under everything, and that's why one reason why I served there because the National Health Service Corps paid for my education because I came when I came back from the Peace Corps, I had no money. And right. so in return, I needed to serve in a very understaffed, under-resourced, underfunded clinic. And Cuba fit that. And I, I picked it also because many of my patients would be Navajos. Right. Okay. So you came to Cuba, New Mexico, brand new doctor. You were just out of, out of residency. And here you were entering a new community as a novice doctor, and you probably had a lot of fear going on at that time. So I'm sure a nurse listening right now can recognize and, and really empathize with you around that fear of you just got out of school, finished your training, here you are with your white coat or your scrubs or whatever, your stethoscope, and now you're supposed to be this all-knowing professional. And what is it like to, and we'll get to your story in a second, but what is it like to walk in as a fresh doctor in a very unusual setting it and was, decide that you're going you're gonna to do this, you're going to dive in? It was terrifying. <laughs> okay, terrifying. <laughs> no, I, wasn't, I wasn't afraid. I was in terror okay. and because I could see that the night duty, which I was immediately thrown into night duty. The moment I stepped on there, they said, okay, uh, the clinic hours were just finishing. And they said, you're on duty all night. <laughs> and and I, it was like an emergency room, a very busy emergency room. I was not trained in emergency medicine, but I had to do it. I had to rise to the occasion. And who helped me? The nurses, the EMTs, the physician's assistant, because... They knew way more than I did mm -hmm. as a new doctor. They had been there for a few years, and they had seen lots of people come and go, doctors come and go. They couldn't stand it. Revolving left, door. Revolving door. Right. And, of white people. <laughs> uh, yeah, of white people. And so I am so grateful to all those nurses and um, and PAs who, who helped me survive. And... Uh, I was way over my head. I was doing things that we had only done on anesthetized dogs or plastic mannequins. I was putting in chest tubes, cricothyroidotomies. I, I mean, it was unbelievable the <laughs> stuff I was doing, like to resuscitate this medicine man. Can you imagine? That was my first patient. He had been run over by a truck and he was completely crushed. He was dead on arrival. And most experienced ER doctors would say, okay, he's been dead for a certain period of time. There's no point in resuscitating. Right. I was so naive and, I, and all the relatives were pouring in the Navajo relatives, and they were angry. They mm -hmm. were expecting this doctor. Who they, di they didn't know me, and they didn't know my Navajo connection. They were mad, and they said, you know, they were saying, we always get these people who don't know anything, uh, who are just out of their training. And, and so they, they expected me to resuscitate their relative. Mm -hmm. And he was dead on arrival. He'd been dead for a while. And, and he'd so, been crushed by a truck several times. crushed by a truck. And, and so in my naivete... And fear, I went 
all out. I put a tube in every orifice. <laughs> I did stuff that was so far over oh my, my head. And, so, and there were nurses there they, assisting you. Yeah, they all told me what to do. Like they told me we're out of ventilation tubes. <laughs> and, so, and so I used a ballpoint pen. Right. I emptied the insides. I learned it from medics who'd come back from Vietnam. Right. That's what they did. So that's what we did. And then finally a nurse did the cricothyroidotomy. Yeah. And then a nurse finally found a tube in a drawer someplace. Oh my God. I mean, this place was so primitive. It was like yeah. camping or something. Uh, like, uh, you know, you set up in the field in an army or something. You know, I learned how to do that cricothyroidotomy watching MASH when I was a kid because Radar had to do one during MASH during an episode I'm dating myself and he had to use a pen because he had nothing else and they walked him through it over the phone and he stuck the pen you know, through the through the like, trachea. Oh my God! Well, that was me, and so and so <laughs> then you. then finally I I called for help. I was so scared. I called UNM uh -huh. and University asked, of yeah, New Mexico in and, Albuquerque and asked them to send a trauma surgeon over by by helicopter. Right. And so an hour later, the helicopter arrived with the trauma surgeon, and by that time, we, we did finally declare him dead. Uh -huh. And so the trauma surgeon looked at the dead medicine man, and he took a quick history, and then he, um, he gave me some statistics saying that only 1% of people who are found dead in the field or ever uh -huh. uh, regain a pulse and blood uh -huh. pressure. And he put his hand on my shoulder, and he looked in my eyes and said, good job keep up the good work. And then he went back into his helicopter and went back to, oh my God. to University of New Mexico. And you were probably thinking, please stay. Please so so I, I went into the bathroom and I cried. Oh. I sobbed. This was my first experience and I was up all night and then I had to be up the next day. Right. And so I cried and then I realized, you, you, I can't cry. I gotta, I gotta get back and talk to this family. They're so angry, and the waiting room is full of all these Navajos. And so I splashed cold water on my face, and I dried my face, and I say, "Okay, buck up. We can do this." Right. And so I walked into the room, and I could tell these people were really angry because mm -hmm. of this incompetent doctor who could not resuscitate their relative. Right. And they they were fed up with these people who didn't know what they're doing sent to to the health clinic. And, and then you had to go in and tell them he was dead. I had to tell them he was dead and I I was shaking and I couldn't stop being choked up and then I just reverted to Navo. I started talking about in Navo. I said, "In Navo, I'm so sorry about your relative. I tried my best." And all of a sudden, all the anger in the room dissipated. In fact, people started to smile. And at the end of my little Navajo speech, they lined up to shake my hand. Mm. And uh, th this was so, so, and that was the way things were. Once they knew that I had a connection with their people, mm -hmm. they were so warm and friendly and make jokes with me. Right. It, it was amazing. That was my experience with the Puerto Rican community. And it was an amazing thing to be welcomed in and and accepted and seen as as this person who can be honored and respected because you are honored and respect right. honoring and respecting them. So Erica, we're gonna take a really quick break. When we come back, I wanna have you read part of your story of that first incredible monumental night okay. in Cuba, New Mexico. And then we wanna talk about your book 
and your medical practice here in Santa Fe. I would say you're one of the most incredible doctors here in New Mexico, if not around the country. And we'll dive a little bit into what you do and then let people know how to find you. Thank okay? you. Thank All you. Right. This episode of The Nurse Keith Show is sponsored by Carson Newman University, offering a full suite of 100% online nursing degree programs, not including clinicals or residencies, of course. And those programs include RN to BSN, RN to MSN FNP, MSN FNP, and a Postmaster's FNP certificate. With stress-free clinical placements and unrivaled student support, their CCNE-accredited online courses are designed for busy nurses like you and feature no mandatory class login times. Please visit them at onlinenursing.cn.edu. I thank Carson Newman University for their generous support. Please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners like you who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Nurse Keith. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So let's dig right back into today's topic. And we're back. Thanks for hanging out here at the Nurse Keith Show, episode 232. We're with Dr. Erica Elliott of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm sitting here in her office with her. She's smiling at me. I can see the mountains behind her through the window. And it's a wonderful experience to interview a friend who's also a very gifted physician, an amazing storyteller, and an incredible writer. So, Erica, you did not pay me to say that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That came from my heart. So, Erica, before the break, we were talking about you having to resuscitate or choosing to resuscitate a very dead Navajo medicine man. We talked about cultural competency and how you were welcomed into the community because you spoke Navajo and honored their traditions and their mores and their folkways and their culture. And I would love you to read this passage of your arrival to the clinic for the very first time. Okay. Okay. The book is called Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. It's a beautiful book, by the way. It is really incredible. And so just tell us the story. You're an amazing storyteller about your arrival to the clinic. Okay. Uh, this is just, get just close a to the mic. brief passage. Um, by late afternoon, as the sun was low on the horizon, I decided to take a break and drive back down the road to town. I wanted to introduce myself to the doctor on duty and other staff members at the clinic. I hopped back into my muddy car. The steep, slippery road meandered through spectacular scenery with otherworldly rock formations and towering ponderosa pine trees. The invigorating, crisp mountain air smelled delicious, even in the rain. As the road rapidly descended, the landscape became more typical of the high desert, dotted with sagebrush and interspersed with pinon and juniper trees. Rabbits darted in and out of my peripheral vision as I concentrated on keeping my wheels outside the deeply carved ruts in the road. 
Once I finally turned off the bumpy dirt road and reached the pavement, I spotted a series of long, low, ramshackle buildings made of partially rotted wood with tin roofs. The sign in front read, The Cuba Health Center. The building housed a nine-bed hospital along with a busy emergency room and outpatient clinic. I tried to enter what looked like the front door but found it locked. I knocked on the door. No answer. I knocked louder and waited while the rain beat down on me. A Hispanic emergency medical technician in blue scrubs opened the door a crack, stuck his head out, and said, What do you want? Taken aback, I responded warily, I'm the new doctor. He looked me over briefly and then opened the door wide to let me in. He said, We've been waiting for you. He had a mischievous smile on his face that I did not know how to interpret. The EMT led me to a small room where the medical practitioners wrote in their charts at the end of the day. Inside the room, the doctor on duty sat leaning back in his chair with his feet on the desk. His piercing green eyes looked me over from head to toe in a friendly and flirtatious way. Then he took his feet off the desk, sat up in his chair, and said, Hi, Erica. My name is Bill. You have no idea how glad we are to see you. I'm ready for a break from this place. Bill had been trained in emergency medicine. The administration in Santa Fe hired him on a temporary basis to work at the clinic until a permanent doctor could be found, someone willing to serve time in this isolated stretch of the Southwest. It was a few minutes past five o'clock. I asked Bill, when do you get to go home and get some rest? His answer took me by surprise. I'm going home right now. You're on call tonight. We'll be alternating nights on duty. It's just you and me, Doc. Tommy here will show you around. He said, gesturing to the EMT who had let me in. He's one of our very best EMTs. Good luck. I could never have imagined what was waiting for me that night. (laughs) I've heard you read that several times, and I'm always taken right to the scene. And I can feel your terror. (laughs) And the medicine man story, the crushed medicine man, happens that night. That night. And what else happened that night? Uh, What are a few other scenarios? A Navajo woman came in all dressed up in traditional clothing, and she was having full-on seizures. It was uh, eclampsia from pregnancy, lack Mm. of magnesium. So I started an IV. Now, this is all stuff, family practice stuff. So it wasn't all one nightmare after another. Some of the stuff I was well-trained for, but much of it I was not. Right, The, the stuff that was outside your ken. But you had no choice but to do it. I had no choice. Right. And then um, I did a delivery that night with a Hispanic family. And it's interesting, the laboring was so different because when the Navajos go into labor, in my experience then, they don't make any noise. Mm -hmm. Whereas there was huge screaming with um, other cultures. Right. And, uh, help. I don't want to do this. I want to go home. Right. Give me an epidural. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the Navajos are stoic. They don't like to demonstrate pain or show pain? Not in Is public. That? Not in you public. You know, when I was in the peyote ceremonies, when I was a school teacher, they were very emotional. Mm-hmm. And But it's just they, it doesn't feel good to them to do it in public. Right. So, so it's a private thing. Yeah. And they do it among their own when they're in a safe space, right. like a ritual space yes. or, or a private space where there aren't outsiders. Right. Right. And then they can emote safely. Right. And, you know, 
we always have to think about, you know, what's the structure of this community? How does the society function? You know, and when you go into a scenario like that, it's a tribal people. They're right. community oriented. They they think as a collective. Right. And like you said in the first half, about twenty five minutes ago, you were talking about how white people. It's always about me, me, me. Yeah. Like, what can I do? How can I Excel. go forward? And in that culture, it's different. Yeah. It's like how can we serve the community? Right. How can we all move forward? Right. And it's it's a very fundamental shift in in the way you think, isn't it? Totally. And did you have moments where you felt that you were totally present and able to just be among them as you, but feeling that you belonged, feeling that you knew that you were in a place where you were accepted and you could just be? I felt so such a deep sense of belonging that truly sometimes I forgot that I was white. This is when I was a school teacher and a sheep herder. I, I in fact, uh, I remember one time, this was almost 50 years ago, uh, driving two hours to Gallup, New Mexico to do grocery shopping. And at the grocery store, I thought, oh, wow, these, these, People look so anemic. It looks like there's something wrong with them. They're so ashy. And then I thought, well, that's the way you look too. You're white too. Right. And I completely forgot. And in fact, they called me a Navajo name, Asahlachi. That means Navajo woman with red skin because I was always sunburned. So they oh. called me Redskin. Really? That's so interesting. Because I was sunburned. <laughs> so interesting. Can you, I, I know you always say that your Navajo is not very good right now, but unless there's a Navajo nurse or someone who speaks Navajo listening, no one will know the difference. I can talk so if you... Could you say a little yeah, bit in sure. Navajo so we can get a sense of the music sure. of the language? Okay, so this is the first uh, few sentences I said ever in Navajo in my whole life. And my teacher aide taught me. So what I'm about to say is, good morning, my children. My name is Erica Elliott. What's your name and where do you come from? I think it's a beautiful language. Out here in New Mexico, you can actually hear Navajo radio shows. So you can actually listen in and, and hear how how different English words are are inserted. Yeah. Like yeah. the word, like you might hear them saying website yeah, or email yeah, yeah. or something like that, yeah. right? Like you just said you were speaking in Navajo, then you said Erica Elliott. Yeah, and yeah. It's interesting to hear them interspersed. It's sort of like... Puerto Ricans who joke about speaking Spanglish. Yeah, Spanglish, yeah. Yeah, there's all yeah. these English words that get yeah. incorporated. So what was it like to learn how to speak the language and be able to communicate on that level? It must have been it must have been exciting and must have felt so good in your heart to be able to be that present. It felt so good when I started learning Navajo. Everything changed. The The children were totally open to me. They told me stuff about their lives. They wanted me to know about them. And that's why the kids in my class excelled so with such astonishment, the English. In fact, I entered them into speech contests mm -hmm. and three of them won. I mean, they, can you imagine? These were kids who didn't speak English when I walked in. Because you empowered them. Empowered them, and they wanted me to know about their lives mm -hmm. because they knew I cared. 
Right. And your patients, once you became a doctor and returned, your patients knew you cared as well. And those Navajo people whose medicine man slash relative had just died smiled and shook your hand and thanked you because they saw that you really cared and you were trying to be, you were trying to deliver care and interact with them in a in a kind way. They could see that I really tried hard. I wasn't just fiddling around. I, I was yeah. desperately trying to bring this man to life. Yeah. Wow, it's wonderful. So the book, Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People by Erica M. Elliott, MD. The forward was written by Joan Borisienko, PhD. Many listeners might not know who she is, but she is a very, very famous writer and Speaker, I don't know, speaker, metaphysician. She yeah. is. She yeah. is quite a person. And you have, you have reviews by Larry Dossi, famous doctor here in Santa Fe. Natalie Goldberg, amazing writer here in Santa Fe. Anne Hillerman, Tony um, Hillerman's Tony daughter. Tony Hillerman's mom, daughter, daughter, and Reverend Joan Halifax from the Upaya Zen Center here in Santa Fe. So some very high level people have read and reviewed this book and. I know that people are revering this book here in Santa Fe, and I want any listener tuning in to go to the show notes and see the link to be able to buy the book, because it is really an amazing story. And if you're a nurse listening and you work with any cultures at all, it doesn't have to be native cultures, but if you read this book and hear Erica's stories and the way that she practiced cultural competence before any of us even heard or talked about cultural competency. You'll learn how ensconcing yourself in a community and making yourself available to that community in a way that that meets them where they are will completely change your experience. And Erica, I was telling you earlier that a young friend of mine, a nurse from Albuquerque, right now in this very moment, is driving to Alaska to Anchorage to work in an Indian Health Service hospital. And she was recently working at the Acoma Laguna Pueblo out in western, central western New Mexico, serving in their med surge unit there at the Acoma Pueblo. So she is on an adventure to now work with Inuit people and people of other tribes in the Alaska Peninsula. And I'm sending her a copy of this book because I know it'll inspire her in her pursuit of giving care to that population. So you're, you can inspire so many people with your stories, and you are inspiring so many people. That's why I wrote the book. With the elections of 2016, mm-hmm. I felt now's the time after holding this story in my heart for almost 50 years that I have to get this story out because it's a healing story. It's an antidote to these very divisive and sometimes hateful times we live in. Excellent point. When we have all these issues with immigration and the the father and daughter who died crossing the Rio Grande mm. into trying to get into Texas last week, mm. there's plenty going on that feels very uncompetent or incompetent culturally right now. There's a lot of cultural incompetence and a lot of division and hatred and fear, fear Fear. of the other. Fear of the other. Your book demonstrates the opposite of fear of the other. Your book demonstrates the honoring of the other. And I think that's a really beautiful aspect of your story. Hmm. And I just want to shift gears here for a second. Um, We could talk about this for hours and I'd love to do that. But your medical practice here in Santa Fe, you 
are sometimes called an environmental doctor. Yeah. And what does that mean? Well, first of all, I'm trained in both family practice and environmental medicine. Environmental medicine is when you see a patient, you consider all the environmental factors that might be playing a role in the patient's condition. That's what they eat, mm -hmm. what they drink, what they breathe. And I would throw in there what they think, but that's not part of environmental what medicine. what they put on their body. Or what they put on their body, what they wash their clothes with, what mm -hmm. they clean their house with, what they deal with in insect pests, what they, how they deal with weeds. I ask if they uh, have any water damage in the home, any leaks for mold, mold. exposure. I consider Lyme disease. I consider uh, if they've installed new furnishings mm -hmm. for outgassing chemicals like formaldehyde, formaldehyde. and so forth. Exactly. I see if they are using air fresheners, if they use fabric softeners, they burn incense, and burn candles. And how do those things affect someone's health? In, in various ways, depending on one's genetics. Um, so it could affect you neurologically. Most of these toxic chemicals, they go straight to the brain. They enter in the nose, go through the olfactory nerve right into the center of the brain, mm -hmm. and they can cause uh, serious emotional problems, mood disorders, cognitive problems, uh, neurological issues, neurological tremors, uh, rage attacks, insomnia. I mean, the list is very huge. And mm -hmm. then there's all the hormone mimickers, so they can cause ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, terribly painful periods, endometriosis, lumpy breasts that wow. put people at breast cancer. I mean, it, it's. I knew that this field was really important because when doctors don't address environmental issues in these times we live in, they're uh -huh. really missing the boat. And most do not. Most do not. They things. don't ask what you're eating, no. what you're breathing, no. what kind of environment you live in and work in. No, they don't. And so they're really missing the boat. And that's why they rely so heavily on pills because they don't know how to help you. So they treat symptoms. Like right. for your insomnia, you get a sleeping pill. For your uh -huh. headaches, you, you get another pill. Uh -huh. For your vertigo, from the toxins, you get another pill. Right. And you're looking more at root causes, not just within the person's body, but in their environment. Right. So you wrote a book about toxic homes and how to create a, um, a healthy home. It's called Prescriptions for a Healthy Home. It's in its third edition. Right. I have a copy on my shelf at home. Yeah. 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 And we'll put a link to that book okay. for Amazon too. It's yeah. a wonderful book. If you want a primer on how to create a healthy home, how to take into consideration detergents and air fresheners and your lawnmower and how you use it and the fumes that you're you're exposed to. Right. 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 So you treat a lot of people with environmental illness, multiple chemical sensitivity, which many in the medical field don't believe is real. And my wife and I actually both have multiple chemical sensitivity and environmental illness. With, through you, your help, and the help of others, we've really healed it to a large extent. However, we we use all natural biodegradable products in our home. We don't burn scented candles that are made from petroleum. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And sometimes when we're exposed to some of these chemicals, it's it's a real problem. And there's an organization called the American uh, oh my God, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the group right now, but it's a group of nurses interested in environmental health. Oh, yeah. 
And it is nurses who are looking at these environmental causes, right. as well as looking at climate change and all the right. other things that are affecting our health. Right. You know, with climate change, right, we've seen changes in terms of tick-borne illnesses, right. insect-borne illnesses. Yeah. So, so I know from experience that you're truly holistic in the way you look at someone's health. So if I was a patient walking through your door and I sit down in your exam room, what are the first things you're looking for? And this might be interesting to a nurse out there who's interested in seeing their patients in a different light. I'm looking for patterns, and what I kinds of I patterns? rely very heavily on the patient's history. I ask them to come prepared, so they're they're going to do a lot of work to come be my patient. They right. they have to spend like about an hour writing a very concise, in bullet form, not a novel, mm -hmm. uh, about their past medical history, and then and then a more detailed account of what their symptoms are now. What makes them worse? What makes them better? When did they start? Did they start gradually or suddenly? I'll give you an example. Please, please. I had a patient who was a doctor. She was a geriatrician in um, Dartmouth. Okay. Yeah. She was highly trained, and she uh, had her, her body hurt all over, and she couldn't think very well anymore, and uh, she could not practice medicine anymore because her cognitive abilities plummeted. Wow. And she had been to many doctors, and no one could help her. And they told her, this is to a doctor, they okay. told her she was a hypochondriac and she needed psychiatric help. This that is, happens so often. Yes, it does. It was so insulting. And they gave her narcotics. She came out here to participate in a, a, a healing kind of thing with mm -hmm. an organization called the UDV. Mm -hmm. And... She told them how terrible she'd been feeling for years. They said, why don't you go to Erica? She's like the medical detective. So that was when I was still taking new patients. Right. <laughs> Those days are over. <laughs> and so she came to me, and it was really easy to figure out what she had. It was really? so easy. What did you All figure you out? have to do is listen to the patient and ask the right questions. That's all you have to do. You don't even have to be a genius or anything. So this is what I said. Okay. How long have you had this problem? She said, uh, I felt terrible for six years. Okay. I said, well, you're very clear about how long. Did it come on suddenly or gradually? Very suddenly. Okay. Oh, okay. I said to her, then this won't be so hard because there was you were fine and then you weren't fine. I said, do you actually remember when you weren't fine? She said, I, I remember it very clearly. Hmm. No one had asked her these questions. I said, what was it? Describe to me. She said, I went, she was from Vermont. I went uh, on a hike with my family in the woods and I came back and I, I felt like I had the flu. Hmm. I said, you have Lyme disease. And that's what she had. So no providers they had did, they, identified that it could have been Lyme. They did test her for it. And the tests in those days were highly inaccurate because, not because they, they were no good, the tests, it was because Lyme organisms, when they've hung around for a long time, they can go under the radar by masking themselves so your immune system can't recognize them. Mm. So when you do these tests, it checks for antibodies to the Lyme organisms. And if the Lyme organisms are protecting themselves, so, so the white blood cells can't identify them and attack them, they go under the radar and they don't show up on tests. Mm. 
And so the, when she went back, I said, you need to go back to your Lyme specialist and you need to order uh, DNA tests for, for, for Lyme. And oh, she was positive. Okay. But, but by that time, they missed their chance to take care of her because if you get Lyme, you get bitten and you get antibiotics right away, mm-hmm. you are dodging a huge bullet. Right, because with Lyme, of course, and we're not going to go deep into this, but you have arthritic symptoms, right. you have emotional, right. kind of psycho-emotional symptoms. It, it, it's a great mimicker. You can have any symptoms. So that's just one example. This is just one example. You see, what makes me different is I really listen to the patient, and I ask a lot of questions, and I'm looking for a pattern. Hers was so easy to figure out. Mm. She was well, and then she wasn't well. That's really easy. Wow. it's incredible. And there aren't that many physicians who think this way. I'm sure there's more than there were 30 years ago when you started out. And do you feel that medicine is heading in a direction where people are thinking more in this particular way? It's going in two branches. Okay, which are the branches? One one are very entrenched in the pharmaceutical model. Okay, what some people might call the pharmaceutical medical industrial complex. Yeah, okay. they're very entrenched in that. Okay, And then there's um, a group, usually younger physicians, but that's not always the case. They could okay. be older too, that are going off in a totally different direction, more like the way I've been practicing mm-hmm. for the last... Th- I was a mainstream doctor for 10 years, so I know all about the medical industrial complex. You've been there. Because I've been there. And uh, it was so unsatisfying. This is not why I went into medicine to be giving pills. In fact, the Navajo word for white doctor is a zesini, which means he who gives out pills. Oh, That's okay. how the Navajos view white doctors. So we're circling back to the Navajo, yeah, yeah. seeing how they recognized naturally these doctors from another culture right. and another a whole other way of looking at the world who would dispense pills for almost any for almost anything whereas that's completely outside their ken that, that's not what they do and i'm sure some navajos now do take pills i mean they have hypertension diabetes oh, oh, yeah, etc but also the ability to be able to see beyond yeah. that to yeah. see beyond this the superficial aspects of medicine and to look deeper into people's lives right you know when someone moves into a new home yeah. And they haven't used low VOC paint and there's fumes and whatever else was used to build that home. Right. That is going to affect them. Right. 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 So my wife and I right now have mold in our kitchen and our whole kitchen has been torn apart. It's now just four walls and a dirt floor and it's being completely remediated. And being exposed to mold is a dangerous thing. Very dangerous. And even if you live in the desert like we do, mold is extremely tenacious. So We have even more vicious mold in New Mexico, and I'll tell you why. Why? He, many people say, oh, you don't have mold in New Mexico. It's too dry. Right. Wherever there's moisture, like a leaking pipe or a leaking roof, there's mold. And we have some mo- most vicious strains because they have to compete for limited food and water. Therefore, they create these mycotoxins that are deadly. Mm. Whereas in Hawaii, they don't have to compete. So their, their mold strains are not as deadly as they are here. Right. They have lots of food and water in Hawaii. Right. Very interesting. And there's so much more to learn. And maybe we'll have to come back and visit again sometime in the future. Maybe when your next book comes out. Or maybe when you're interviewed on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. So (laughs) we'll circle back. 
Okay. So Erica, you are amazing. You're an incredible human being, a storyteller, a healer, a doctor, and a now published author. And I just want to thank you for taking the time. This is fascinating. And I love bringing these other conversations and ways of looking at the world to this show because some nurse out there is hungry for what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And if you can cause one nurse to change the way he lives or what he puts on his body, or you can cause one nurse to say, yeah, I want to provide more culturally competent care. What can I do to do that? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's an amazing accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to The Nurse Keith Show. And remember that the show notes for this episode where you can learn all about Erica Elliott, MD, is at nursekeith.com forward slash episode 232. You definitely want to head to the show notes to check out Erica's wonderful website, to listen to some of her recordings on there, and of course, to purchase her two incredible books, which I cannot recommend highly enough. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode, and I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and happiness. And did you know there are job listings at nursekeith.com? That's right. You can find jobs from reload.com and ZipRecruiter in the resources section on the homepage of nursekeith.com, as well as resources like OpenMD, which is a free website where you can go and look up and get the best evidence-based medical information anywhere on the internet. Rather than using Google, use OpenMD.com, and you can bypass all of the blogs and all the spurious information and get right to the Mayo Clinic, to Medscape, to all the information you want for free, especially if you are practicing in a place where you don't have access to up-to-date and Hippocrates and all those incredible websites and apps for you to practice the way you most want to practice. The Nurse Keith Show is edited and produced by Tim Hollowell and his team at thepodcastinggroup.com. And Mark Cappiespeason is our wonderful social media ringmaster. Please keep tuning in again and again as we continue to explore how to powerfully elevate your life and career into your very own personal and professional stratosphere. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Dr. Erica Elliott bidding you adieu from Santa Fe, New Mexico. Santa Fe, New Mexico. All right. Thank you, Erica. And we will catch you all on the flip side.